Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage bed, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us today? Well, as I mentioned, we're nearing the end of our study in Hosea. Lord willing, next week will most likely be our last week, but I'm not making any promises. I know how sometimes you can look at a text again, and all of a sudden you change the plan a little bit. But when we look at Hosea 13, I wanted to just kind of pause on these verses when, when we look at these verses. Because it's, it's rather troubling, uh, to be honest. We think about the, the nature of what Hosea is saying and, and our struggle here and, and who we are. We hear Second Peter give a warning that even in the church in, in a wilderness time, we think that a church gathering together and, and truly longing for the second coming of Christ and, and longing to put off this struggle of sin in this age. And longing to enter into glory, that you think that, that even the church should be tuned into the purpose of Christ, seeing the resurrected Lord. And yet Peter recounts, there are those who come to the church, try and deceive the church, try and deceive the saints. Think of Hosea writing to the covenant people have come out of Egypt seen the mighty acts of God, have seen the theophany, the visible manifestations of God pictured through smoke and fire in different times of their history. And you would think that having that visible, tangible reality would pull Israel away from any temptations of any false gods. And yet we look at the Ten Commandments and how they apply to us in Christ. We notice the bookends of idolatry and coveting. Basically, idolatry and coveting become uh, two real heart sins, aren't they? Where idolatry, we're putting anything in the place of God that gives us satisfaction, joy, a, a means of living. Coveting is, is where you have the, the birthing of sin that gives way to the actual acting out of the sin. And so it, it becomes one of those things where you read Hosea and you say, if we are so prone to wander, and God is so upset with his people, how can we go on? Why, why live the Christian life if it just seems it's going to end in absolute failure? Or is that just a radically cynical view of Hosea? Is Hosea teaching us something different? I mean, is this where God annuls his promise because he's so fed up with his people? Or is there something else that's going on here that actually, yes, it is a warning, no doubt. But it can also be rather encouraging for us. And so how can it be encouraging? So let's look at this. Where we see first Ephraim's folly. We see Ephraim forgiven, potentially. And then we see Ephraim essentially forgotten. And so we look at this and say, okay, well, let's begin with Ephraim's folly. What's, what's fundamentally going on here? Well, Hosea... Unfortunately, we haven't had the time to bring out all the puns. We brought out some of them. But Ephraim is a, a rather important pun in this book. 
Because Ephraim's name means increasing. It's where Joseph is dying. He names his son Ephraim, surveys his life, and he says, wow, look at how the Lord has prospered me in Egypt and um, has basically increased everything that I have done and everything my hand has touched. And so Ephraim really is a, a wonderful reflection of Joseph's time in Egypt where he starts as one who uh, is almost murdered by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused, goes into prison, and then somehow in the providence of God, unbeknownst to Joseph, ends up being basically the second in authority in, in Egypt. I mean, a remarkable transformation. And so Ephraim is the, the commemoration of the Lord's providence, if you will, that the Lord blesses his people, gives good things to his people. And so it's important when Hosea is taking Ephraim as parallel to Israel, and he's played on Israel being the wrestling, striving people, and how Israel stopped striving with their God at this point, and that's the problem. They're not wrestling and, and trying to put to death within them what should be put to death. And so he calls attention, here's Ephraim. We're news in celebrating the increasingness of, of what God has done. I know it's bad English, but that's sort of what the Hebrews bringing out. And, and the point of bringing this out is to say, and what does Ephraim increase in and of himself? But his own sin, his own weight of uh, things that are kept in store brought against himself as he has rebelled against God. Now when we hear this, we, we can certainly see where this sets the stage of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist touches on one form of idolatry, not exhaustive. But where John the Baptist touches on the idolatry of one resting in their covenantal identity, right? Now, it's not bad to say Abraham's my father. It's not bad to look at the covenant and say, here are the terms of the covenant. It's not wrong. Obviously, we're commanded to raise our children in the Lord. But where it becomes idolatrous and sinful and what John the Baptist is warning is when we trust... In Abraham being our father, or we trust in our going to church, or we trust in the means, right? The, the call of all of this, the, the means of grace, worship, is to call us before our Lord to be focused on our Redeemer. And that's why John the Baptist says, don't say Abraham's our father, don't say we have the prophets. He's saying you have to embrace the substance of what they hold out. So there is a problem that we have with Israel. Another thing we have to understand when we read Hosea and we look at the people of God is that there is a typology going on here where he refers to Israel as a son. He's called out of Egypt, recounts Israel um, as the person who basically gives way to the communal people, right? He's already recounted these things. And when he talks about Israel being his son, he's called out of Egypt, place him in a land, given him the good things. That we have to understand there's an application of the law of God in terms of Israel in the land of Canaan and an application of the law of God of Israel outside the land of Canaan. And I think it's important to keep that in mind so we don't just read this and say, oh, this is exactly who we are and this is exactly what's going on. Now, where do we find examples of this? When we look at this, I, I go back and... and Think about it and go to Leviticus 19. 
And I think here's an, an important understanding of Israel as a national people called to bring heaven on earth, right? Because when Paul speaks of Israel being a pedagogue, Israel's teaching us we're not going to bring heaven on earth. We're not going to do it. Leviticus 19 starts with a, a very strong and frightening exhortation where it says to Israel, you are to be holy because the Lord is holy. Now we'll contrast this as we go on in the sermon. But think about that for a moment. You are to be holy for the Lord is holy. There's no assurance of power in this. In other words, that the spirits that work in you. It's a call for Israel as a national people. You shall be holy. You shall establish this holy land. And this is why when you look through Leviticus 19, and again, this is something to read through and think about this afternoon and what holiness really means. The Leviticus 19.19, for instance, some critics of Christianity bring this uh, to our attention and sometimes we don't know what to do with this, but Leviticus 19.19 says that even the cattle are not to interbreed. So people say, see, it's an ethnic cleansing, it's an ethnic uh, elitist tradition that the Christians have. Well, that's missing the point. What's going on there is the Lord driving home the purity, the separateness, the, the distinctiveness of God's covenant people versus the world. And so the cattle intermingling becomes symbolic of God's people intermingling with the world and not having that distinctiveness, right? Going on, when we think about the, the fruit of the tree, Leviticus 19 verse 23, literally translated that the fruit of the tree that is uncircumcised. Now, uh, in the English, it brings it in forbidden. That's not capturing the essence of what the text is saying. It's not consecrated unto the Lord. It's not set apart unto the Lord. And so it's Israel being in the land that's going to bring this fruit into a place where it is set apart unto the Lord. So this is what it means for Israel to be holy, to have a priority of the Lord. Going on, we think of the curses of Deuteronomy 28 and 29. And it's important to have this in the backdrop, especially when you get to Hosea 13, verse 16. I mean, that's a rather dreary, humbling uh, text that's, that's, that's rather just somber. It's, there's nothing really to celebrate there from our human perspective. I mean, it's pure tragedy. Now, of course, we can celebrate God's justice and we can go there. But the reality is, you think about what's being said there. That's a sad text. That's a sad state of God's people. But Deuteronomy 28, 29, sometimes people want to take these uh, blessings and curses and just abstractly apply them to Christians. But it's applied to Israel. Because it says in Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, If you faithfully obey the voice of your God, it is conditional. And it's conditional for Israel's are in the land. But go in Deuteronomy 29, verse, verse 2, where you have the covenant, referring back to the Mosaic covenant. So this is the paradigm that I'm working with in Hosea 13. I think it's important to have this clear in our minds because we need to have a clear understanding of what God is exhorting us to do. And to truly have a clear understanding of what God is teaching us, as Paul says, Israel's a pedagogue, right? When Paul uses this language, we think of the slave 
who's teaching the children how to function in public so they don't embarrass their parents uh, when they're at the banquet meal and they know how to conduct themselves around adults and other people uh, who are more elite in society and um, how to properly address people, basically how to function with proper manners. And that's what Israel as a pedagogue is doing. So one, it's teaching us we're not going to bring heaven on earth. And that's, that's a rather sober reminder. We're not going to do it. But what we have here as the Lord comes to Hosea, and recount, or Hosea comes to Israel and Ephraim, and he says that the iniquity of Ephraim is, is bound up. He's saying there's a rap sheet. And he's saying, here's a pun on Ephraim, right? You're the one where I've increased you. You commemorate your increasing. And what do you increase at the end of the day? You increase your iniquity, your sin against me. And so the Lord is, is calling this as a record and saying, listen, you want all the proof. I don't think you want all the proof. But here's a, the general reality of what you have done. Now, when the Lord speaks of them continually adding to the storehouse, what did Israel say where we left off in verse 11? I gave you a king under protest. Why does Israel want a king? Well, it does teach us something about ourselves, doesn't it? We want a king to be like the other nations, they say in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And when they say this in 1 Samuel 8 verse 20, they're saying we want to be like the world. We don't want to be distinctive. We, we want to have a place at the table. We want to be taken serious with the world. And we want to be a nation like the other nations rather than being heaven shining down on earth. And so that tells us something about where Israel has gone. They failed to see the Lord as their king. Now, the, the Lord, as he presents us uh, to, to us in, in verse 13, he, he presents a little bit of a, a humorous way of presenting where Ephraim is. It's something we can laugh at until we pause for a moment and say, wait a minute, I think you're talking about me. But here the, the Lord is saying basically the pangs of childbirth. So it's recalling the common curse, right? So the time for a child to be born. Ephraim is there in the womb, uh, supposed to present itself, supposed to be born. Now, some more optimistic commentators say, well, this is a child that's breached. Well, that's, that's not what the Hebrew text is communicating. The Hebrew text, if you want to really take it literally, he's saying, here's Ephraim, supposed to be born, but they're too stupid to be born. I mean, it's, it's sort of comical. Like, here's a baby who can come out of the womb and have life and say, no, I, I want to stay in the womb. I, I want to buck against your birth. I want to buck against new life. This is like when the Apostle Paul recounts his conversion. And the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? That's what the Lord saying to Ephraim. I give you life. I bring you into the land. I give you all this bounty. And what do you do? You say, the Lord's not good enough for me. I don't want the Lord. I want everything else. And so the Lord's saying, this is who you are. You're, you're that absurd child who should come into the world. But just say, I don't want to come into the world. I don't want to leave what I deem as being comfortable. And the ultimate reality of that means that the child and the mother end in death. The tragedy of tragedies. That's the implication of this. So we have then just that broad grid, that, that broad reminder of what's going on here when we rehearse a little bit in verses 12 and 13, really just the sin, the iniquity of Ephraim, and, and just who they are as they continue to rebel against the Lord. So now we, we look at this and say, okay, well then what about verse 14? 
Well, verse 14, if you notice how I read it, that I uh, changed it a little bit, nothing uh, really uh, radical, but it's the reality of, of where you have the internal dialogue of God. And actually, I notice here in this ESV, it does translate it the way I read it. The other translation I looked at is not, but it's really an internal dialogue of what the Lord is using. And the internal dialogue of what the Lord is asking is, shall I ransom them? Shall I redeem them? Right? So it's a, a repetition of this reminder. Some translate this as an assertion. And I guess it was an older translation I was looking at, or a newer translation. But anyway, so some will translate this as an assertion, that the Lord, I shall redeem them, I shall ransom them. That's the implication what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. But here is the internal dialogue of God. Shall I hand them over to what they desire? Shall I change their course of life? Now, here we, we have that, that tragedy. I mean, what, what does this mean? Ransom, redeem. Well, the Lord's driving home a reality of this. So the, the ransom is certainly something that we understand in our day and age. It's kind of like a kidnapping. Uh, could be a violent deliverance is what the text communicates, where you basically have to go into a situation hot, take someone out of a hostile situation, um, that, that there's a cost involved, that, that there's a strategy involved, right? You have to have a tactical plan to go in. It, it can be that kind of meaning. It can be paying a, a ransom fee for a kidnapping and to get the person out of a predicament. So that's not necessarily someone getting them into a, a terrible situation, uh, but it's someone who is in that terrible situation currently. So you can understand where you have this ransom from the power of Sheol. So they're in a current situation of the power of Sheol. Now Sheol is the realm of the dead. Uh, in the Hebrew mindset, you read the Psalms, you think of Sheol being below the earth, in, below the, earth, below the ocean, uh, basically in a mysterious realm that we cannot see where the large creatures of the deep dwell. So it's a place of death. So what he's saying is, shall I deliver them right now from their current situation of being dead people walking? It's a way of taking this question, right? You, you hear this say, we're not dead, we're walking around. What are you talking about? But that's the point of what Hosea is saying. No, you're in the realm of the dead. Going on then, where he says, shall I redeem them from death? Now redeem, when we go into scripture, this where you think of a kinsman redeemer, right? paying the cost to get someone out of a bad situation. Uh, we think of slavery where it is more someone's uh, being sold into slavery for whatever reason. You pay the redemption. Uh, we think of Israel being redeemed out of Egypt in a situation where they're not in a strong position. They're enslaved and they need someone to come get them, rescue them, deliver them, pay the penalty tied mostly or, or generally to slavery, which is how redemption comes to us. So he says, shall I redeem them from death? Another internal dialogue. Shall I deliver them from their current state of death? Where Israel say, oh, we're not in Sheol. It says, no, you're, you're in the state of death. You're enslaved to it. You've given yourself over to it. You don't even think about it anymore. And so the, the Lord, when he asks this question in verse 14, is very important because what does Ephraim do? Well, Ephraim, in its idolatry, uh, trusting in the golden calves, 
trusting in Assyria, right? They're looking to Assyria. Assyria is going to deliver them from their turmoil. So they're looking to another nation, to another king, uh, doing a political strategy like the kingdoms around them. And so there they are saying, this will save us. And so the, the Lord is saying, but you're not understanding. Because the next two questions are so significant. He says, oh, death, where are your plagues? So, I mean, we know plagues. We think of Egypt, right? The ten plagues. That's, that's where the Lord is showing his power. You think of Abram going to a foreign nation and the Lord revealing to Abimelech, hey, careful with this woman you've taken into your harem. And, you know, plagues fall upon him, right? So you have these examples where the Lord has made clear that plagues are bad things. But he's saying, oh, death, where are your plagues? Which means that death, which we think can send plagues, does not send plagues. Death has no hold on God's people. He's saying, my sovereignty extends beyond death. Death cannot destroy my intentions. Going on where he emphasizes this even more because he starts with death and he's sort of flipping this around now, as you notice. So he goes back to Sheol. You think, well, that's the realm of the dead. Clearly, no being can peer into Sheol. That's below the ocean. That's, that's beyond our, our understanding, our comprehension. And the Lord says, what's Sheol to me? Sheol's not going to overpower me. In other words, you really think Assyria's going to save? You really think Egypt is going to save or Egypt is a place of refuge? You really think that these nations can overpower my purpose for my people? They can't. The Lord's saying, my sovereign will, my power, my rule goes beyond just the other nations, goes beyond Canaan. It goes to the very depth of what is the greatest plague and the greatest terror that we face. The ultimate unknown of passing from this life to the life to come. Where we are those who die and our souls exit our bodies. And we have absolutely no control over what happens at that moment. The Lord is saying, I'm such a king, I'm such a sovereign, I'm such a shepherd, that I can even shepherd you through that moment to what is to come. Now notice then the dark line in verse 14. Compassion is hidden from my eyes. He's saying, you think Assyria is your problem? You think Egypt's going to be your savior or Assyria's going to save you? You think these other nations? I'm the one who saves. And so the Lord isn't doing this because he's cruel. Remember, 200 years of idolatry has gone on. The Lord has warned them. Now the Lord is saying, you want your sin, you want your false gods, you want to trust in what you trust in? I'm handing you over to it. You see what those other nations are like compared to me. You see what it's like to live under their rule and how much they care for you. Go ahead. Go there. Discover what it's like to be handed over to your sin. Not a good thing, is it? In fact, we find the ultimate fulfillment of this in 70 AD where Christ basically takes us up and we can see that certainly in verse 16 where Christ gives his uh, exhortation reminder to, to the women in Jerusalem. <laughs> Be thankful you didn't give birth, because what's coming your way uh, when this is all destroyed is not going to be a pleasant thing. And again, that's a model, that's an anticipation of the final and, and definitive judgment that's coming in Christ. And so we say, okay, 
So there's a potential of Israel being forgiven, but the Lord says compassion is hidden from my eyes. What about Ephraim being forgotten in verses 15 and 16? Well, here we have the ultimate reality. Ephraim was at a place where he flourished among his brothers, but not anymore as we've covered this. We have the reminder and the warning that the Lord says he will put their children to death, 9 verse 16. We have the reality that all the wealth in their treasury that, that, they've, that where the Lord began were you know, basically the treasury, the storehouses that they've had, where they boast about all the money they've made in Egypt and all the things they've done over there. The Lord saying your storehouse is storing up your sin and wickedness. They're going to be handed over to uh, the Lord's will. They're, they're going to be handed over to what they desire. The Lord's just going to give them up to it. So the Lord's saying, yeah, you're going to flourish. You're going to be great. But you're going to be like that east wind. Remember we talked about the east wind. If you've ever been in Southern California, it's like the Santa Ana's, where it's the wind that comes in from the desert, passes over the mountains, picks up in, in momentum and heat. And it's ultimately like standing in front of the, an air duct when the furnace kicks on, where you have the hot air that's very dry blowing in your face. Nobody in their right mind is going to go against that east wind because it's just going to dehydrate you almost immediately and you're going to feel the effects of it. But he said that's who they are. That the east wind's going to come, it's going to come from the wilderness, and so this is saying their exile is coming against them. Now the tragedy in the east wind, if you are caught in it, one of the things you crave more than you can understand is water. And he's saying that their fountain, their spring of life is going to dry up. So again, you can think of that in a very literal sense of here you are traveling, the east wind comes against you and you desire thirst. But he's speaking of this also in a metaphorical sense, that the true life of God is going to dry up. You're going to look for it and it's not there. And you're going to experience the hardship of it. Israel most likely has engaged in child sacrifice, which is a possibility. And the ultimate fulfillment of this is in 2 Kings 15, 16, where you have the brutal attack that comes against them. And again, you can read that on your own. I don't think it's something where we want to spend a whole lot of time talking about the brutality of it. It's tragic. It's sad of what we've seen humans do to one another. But the Lord's basically saying, I'm just going to withdraw you're going to see what it's like to live under a king of another nation. And so this leaves us again, because if we stop at verse 16, that's kind of a humbling place, isn't it? And it leaves us with a place, and then and what, what's our takeaway? Because we, we already talked about what we read from 2 Peter. And I want to read that whole chapter, not only because we're reading just a few verses from Hosea, but that reminder that, that even today we're still prone to idolatry. And we're prone to trust in anything other. As question answer 95 or answer 95 of the catechism reminds us, it says, instead of the one true God who has revealed himself in his word, or along with the same to conceive, to have something else in which we place our trust. It's a rather exhaustive statement of idolatry. Because you see, the, the thing we, we want to do is have the, the list. But the problem with the list, and why I wanted to also read from Galatians 5, because Paul says in things like these. The problem with the list is we think, well, I don't have that one, 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 I'm good. 
But the reality is, if we say we don't struggle with idolatry, we don't have idols that pull us away from God, we're deceiving ourselves. You know, I'm not the only one who said it. Many have said it along the lines that our heart is an idol factory, right? We're, we're always looking for something to give us more fulfillment, more significance. That's what we do as human beings. It is hard for us to walk in the wilderness time in the Lord. Again, that doesn't encourage us. Because we say, well, if we're prone to idolatry, we see where Israel goes. How, how do we know as a church and as individuals that we're truly going to persevere? Because we don't want to find ourselves in a situation of Israel. But this is where we have to hear the significance of Paul. Speaking of Israel being that pedagogue. Because when Paul cites from Hosea 13 verse 14, we can't take this lightly. Then in 1 Corinthians 15 55, which I read for our assurance of pardon. This is significant because the Apostle Paul takes these questions of the Lord wrestling. You know, am I going to do this? Am I going to save them? Am I going to show my compassion? Or do I hand them over to what they want? Well, compassion's hidden from my eyes. I'm going to give them what they want. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Paul cuts that off. It's the assurance that in the resurrection of Christ, the true Israel has come before us and has triumphed in such a way that the Lord, in asking these questions, answers them in Christ Jesus. With, yes, I will ransom them. Yes, I will redeem them. And it's not will, it's have and will definitively. That's the significance of Paul citing this. He's saying, here is your hope. So when we, we look at our Christian life and we start asking ourselves, well, what are the idols? What are the things that pull us away from God? And again, I, I hate to admit this because, again, it's not that I necessarily endorse Tim Keller everything he says, but he actually does give something helpful in terms of our introspection. I have to give this to him. And he says, if you want to know where your idols are, and there's, it's probably Edmund Clowney, to be honest. I just haven't got to find it in Clowney. But anyway, if he says, if you want to know where your idols are, where do you daydream? Right? Where, where do you set your affections? Now, it's not saying everything in there is wrong and everything needs to be put to death, but he's saying those things where you set your affections and your hope, those are your potential idols. Those are the things that can pull you away from your God. So it's one of those things you need to be aware of. it. So I say, okay, so we, we can find that, but I think we need to add to that and be very careful with this because we can put ourselves in a tailspin, can't we? I mean, we can sit there and be so scared that we're scared to live our life. This is where we have to go back to 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Paul assures us that Christ is a life-giving spirit. And this is where we have to say, I have Christ Jesus. He is my redeemer. Now, what distracts me from my Savior currently and potentially? What, what, what do I need to be aware of in my life that can pull me away from my Lord and that I need to, to keep in check? And I want to call to your attention something else in Peter as I've been going through Peter, where Peter underscores this. And notice what Peter does in 1 Peter 2. He cites Exodus 19.6. And you have Moses saying, And you shall be to me, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, or and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is why I need not go off my notes or turn away from them. 
And so it's the Lord calling to our attention what Israel will be if they follow him. 1 Peter 2.9, notice what Peter does with this quote. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The implications of that are so profound. Moses is holding out for national Israel what they can potentially be. Peter is saying, do you understand who you are? Keep in mind, this is a man that when Christ talked about going to the cross, Peter said, no, Lord, you don't suffer. And what does Christ say? Get behind me, Satan. Peter did not understand the mission of Christ when Christ was there in the midst of Peter. Now Peter is saying, I understand the mission of Christ. He had to suffer to attain glory. And we need to see ourselves for who we are in terms of redeemed in Christ. This is where we start in a Christian life and our introspection. We are a kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood. We are sojourners going through this age, having our thoughts and our affections tuned into the Lord. And Peter's saying, live more consistently in light of this. This is who you are as a people who have moved from death to life. And so we might be tempted to say, well, maybe this is just a New Testament thing and the God of the Old Testament is different. Think about what the prophets have said. Isaiah has said to the people of God, Who is the one to whom I will look? He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, verse 2. We've covered Micah 6, verse 8. Of that reminder of what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. These are important things to understand when we live out the Christian life. Israel, in terms of their idolatry, gave in to the pragmatics of what they see with their eyes. They weren't wrestling anymore. They just said, you know what? I don't think God's strong enough, sovereign enough to deliver us from our predicament. They didn't think in terms of maybe if I repent and turn to the Lord, I will have life, which we'll cover next week. And maybe if I turn to the Lord, that he will empower me and by his mercy, I will walk in him. No, they just said, we're going to trust in this. We're going to trust in this. We're going to trust in this. And we're not going to trust in the Lord. When you look at the prophets, you know, as they looked at Isaiah 66, Micah 6, 8, you look at Peter, what we went through, you look at Paul and what we went through, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Peter 2, 9, etc., these passages. Where are we called to see ourselves? We're called to see ourselves today as redeemed in Christ. And it's to have the humility that as we are redeemed in Christ, we are not a perfect people. We are going to struggle. We are going to struggle to have our affections tuned into our God as they ought to be. We are going to struggle to live out the Christian life as we ought to live it out. And sometimes that's just downright discouraging. And you talk to people who are ready to die and what do they say? I just want to be done with the fight. I want to see my Lord and I want to be in his presence. And you can understand that after 80-some or whatever years that the Lord has given them. 
But what we need to understand is the Lord, as he calls us to be perfect, what does he assure us? I will bring you to perfection. And the call is for us to believe God will bring us to perfection. And the call is for us to have humility before the Lord and to want the Lord to instruct us. We are not going to arrive at perfection in this age, and I'm sorry to tell you that, but we're not. We are a people who wanted to live in a common curse. We are people who wanted to live in a cursed world. That's what we decided in Adam. But by God's grace and the power of his spirit, he kindles within us new life, gives us new birth. And we can hear the exhortation that Hosea gives. Don't be the child that is kicking against the birthing. Don't be the child that's kicking against the goats. Give in to the spirit. Conform to the Lord. Believe that living a life out of gratitude and the power of the Holy Spirit is truly a noble and worthwhile life. Tremble at the word of God. Not in the sense that we're terrified to come before God. Not in the sense that we, we want to get ourselves perfect before we come into his presence. But tremble before the word of God in the sense that we want to learn. We want to be instructed. We want to conform to what the Lord desires for us individually and as his communal people. So we ask that question, did God annul his promise? No, the Lord's teaching us. As Paul reminds us, Israel is a pedagogue. He's teaching us. He's given us a situation where we can build heaven on earth on a very small scale, on a model. And we failed. And somebody could say, well, if I went back to Israel, I'd do it better. Well, I, I, I doubt it. If you say, well, if I go to Eden, I would have done better. I, I doubt it. The reality is, we are weak creatures. And we think we are so strong. And we need to hear the promises of God again and again and again. That the Lord's sovereign will is stronger not only than the nations, not only than our enemies, but he's able to shepherd us from this life to the life to come. I mean, think about that promise, the thing where we are in the utmost reminder of we have no control over at all. God's able to uphold us. And so if you think about the Lord being able to do this, as I, I would argue Paul invites us to think about that, Hosea's inviting us to think about that. When he says that, Abram, I'm your shield and defender. When you look at the things in this age that may terrify you, you remind yourself, wait a minute, this is a God who peers into the darkness and depth of Sheol using prophetic language. A God who's, who's not scared to go down there and see what's going on. He's sovereign over it. If he's able to peer into the very place that we cannot see, and he's able to, to rule over it, how much more is he able to rule over our day-to-day -day existence as we live out our lives? This is what we are invited to contemplate, to meditate, to think about as we sojourn under the sun, as the truth of these words drop within us. No, we are not going to reach perfection in this age, but we will grow. We will conform to our Lord, and we will enjoy the taste of the sweet communion we have with our Lord and Savior. Let us then walk humbly before our God. Let us love his justice. Let us be a people who are truly tremble at his word, not in the sense we're terrified of God, but that we truly want to conform and be instructed as he teaches us in the power of his spirit 
through his word, as we progressively conform to his will, to that wonderful, glorious day when we are united to him fully and see him truly face to face. But let us live out each day he has given us, seeing as a day he has made, assured of his sovereign will, and assured that he will give us everything we need to get through each day of our lives. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, We would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.